So as some of you may know, I just got back a couple of days ago from the West Coast and was teaching a 10-day Vipassana retreat out there and was reflecting on what it's like to bear witness to large number of people going through 10 days in a row paying pretty consistent attention to their experience. And there's a theme to what I noticed because there were so many people that uh, were experiencing this that the beginnings were almost universally difficult weather. <laughs> you know, the, the bodies were contracted and there was pain and sitting and all sorts of emotional stuff sweeping through, you know, grief and anger and, and so on. And that lasted for a bit, but with the intention, which was to bring mindfulness and presence there, what seemed to happen, and this again was universal, is that there began to be some sense of space or room for the difficult weather. It became less difficult. There was still pain and contraction and fear and anger, but a sense of care and a sense of presence with it and a real feeling amongst those that went through that they could handle or be with whatever arose, a real sense of confidence in their experience, really a sense of it's okay. And many times in here, in, in Dharma talks, I think I've described a lot of the spiritual path as coming to a sense of it's okay about what does not feel okay, right? We've talked about that. And this is really the sequence that the Buddha described in the Four Noble Truths. So tonight I'm not going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, but just to say that the first of the Noble Truths is suffering exists, that difficult weather is part of our circumstance for each of us. We all have a struggle. The second of the noble truths is that it's caused by our grasping, by our resisting, by our sense of it's not okay. The third noble truth, freedom is possible, and the fourth, here's how. And the here's how is bring presence, bring care, bring mindfulness to experience. That it's through paying attention in this way that our sense of who we are opens and we become the space it's happening in. We connect with a feeling of confidence and okayness. The basic flavor of freedom is this sense of trusting, our confidence that it's okay. A number of years ago, I went to a sweat lodge, a Native American ceremony that's in, in a structure where there's a fire in the middle and steam and it's very hot. Some of you probably know about it and you sit around in a circle and it's a purification rite that Native Americans do. And the uh, medicine man that was leading it, Fred Wampapa, opened the sweat lodge by saying, in Indian's language, especially in the Lakota language, there's no word for hope. And the reason is, is that their people trust that life is fine just as it is. So I thought that was really beautiful, this sense of not living on hopes 
but rather resting in a sense of it really is perfect as it is. But the question comes up, what makes it possible to really experience life in that way? It's such a contrast to how we go about assuming something's wrong and trying to fix it. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. What makes that radical kind of faith or trust in life possible? And just to start with a bit of defining what we mean by trust, it's not the kind of trust that people won't hurt us, that we won't get wounded. It's not the kind of trust that things are fine so we don't need to respond to suffering. That's really more delusion and selfishness and irresponsibility. Rather, the description I most love about trust is what the Dalai Lama said in response to what would most help us in the West. He said, trusting in the power of our heart and our awareness to awaken through all of life's circumstances. It's the trust that no matter what arises, it can serve awakening. That's the quality of trust that's possible to touch into. So it's helpful in looking at cultivating trust to see what are the roots of our mistrust. How come we go around so much with this it's not okay feeling? It's so conditioned and so deep. The primary realm where we mistrust is our own inner experience, what we call self. If you look inside and ask yourself, how often do you really think of yourself as truly fine, just as you are right now? Check in right now. Does it feel, am I fine just as I am? And in the context of your life, your current behaviors and relationships and ways of feeling and being, is it fine just as it is? If anyone feels, yes, it is, you can leave now. You don't need this tonight. (laughs) For most of us, we have stories about who we are. We have stories about who we want to be. We have stories about who we should be. We're filled with stories, and we go through life computing where we are in contrast to those stories. We're always monitoring. There's this evaluative mechanism that goes on. How am I doing now? And it's always rating things. It's rating our performance and our intelligence and our appearance, how we're doing in relationships. And there's a lot of fear that circles around it because if we come out deficient, then we anticipate that something will go terribly wrong. So we're monitoring, and we're sensing that something wrong, that red flag. There's a wonderful Serbian quote, Be humble, for you are made of dung. Be noble, for you are made of stars. What we do, because we intuit that, but then we twist it. And what we do instead is, instead of being noble, because we come from the stars, we get a sense of grandiosity, like in some way we're different, are special, or the center of the universe. 
And if you look under that, there's insecurity. And instead of being humble, being of the earth, we are aware of our earthy imperfection and deficiency, and we feel shame or embarrassment. We don't trust we can handle this life. So the Buddha teaches that these stories that we put out about ourselves, that there is a self, that there's a self that's deficient, that they all originate in this delusion that a self exists in the first place. That's the kind of root cause for all this proliferation of story. Out of this story of we are a separate self comes all the delusion, the greed, the hatred that causes our suffering. This is basic in Buddhist teaching, and it's also intrinsic to many of the native cultures, the aboriginal traditions, uh, where it's the same sense that our violence, our suffering comes when we get disconnected, separated from our context, our environment, the natural world. This is a quote from Chief Standing Bear of the Lakota Indians. The white man does not understand America, nature, earth. He is too far removed from its formative processes. The root of the tree of his life have not yet grasped the rock and the soil. The white man is troubled by primitive fears. So when we go around considering ourselves as separate, as not of the earth and of each other and not belonging, with that sense of disconnection comes vulnerability and fear. Our project then is how can we armor ourselves? How can we protect ourselves from what's going wrong? If we're separate, we feel incomplete, not enough. So our project is how to get more, hence grasping and resistance. The sense of separate identity is constructed and maintained by thinking. We think, therefore we are a separate self. Just as I came into class tonight, uh, Robert handed me this article. It says, evolutionary necessity or glorious accident, biologists ponder the self. This is the New York Times. I'll read you the first paragraph. The self is like an irritating television jingle. You cannot get it out of your head. <laughs> whatever you do on this blue planet with your allotted three score and 10, whatever you taste, embrace, learn, or create, all will be filtered through the self. Even sleep offers no escape, for who is it that struts through the center of every dream but you, yourself, id? <laughs> and onward and onward. <laughs> So it's the deepest of all our conditioning to perceive a sense of separation and to build this whole world of stories about who we are. Carlos Castaneda, in the books written about the shaman Don Juan, describes our inner dialogue as the way that we sustain our no known world of self and how it all is. When the inner dialogue goes, we open to a very mysterious world. It's constant this talking in our minds, this constant storytelling about how it all is. Sometimes I wonder if 
if somebody talked in my ear as much as I talked to myself, how I'd put up with it. I mean, the repetitiveness, you know what I mean? <laughs> the constant commentary, the judgment, the worry, the plan, and somebody's just like beaming it in. It'd be awful, right? <laughs> Yet we put up with it, don't we? It's awesome. So underneath all these thoughts and stories is a basic belief about who we are. And you can just reflect for a moment. You know, what are your ideas about yourself? If someone said point blank, okay, who are you? What kind of person are you? What comes to mind? Just take a moment. Who are you? What kind of person are you? What are your ideas about yourself? For some, there'll be some positive things to reflect on and others negative, and mostly for us, it's a mix. The truth is that as long as we are defined by these stories, our sense of being is defined by these ideas, we're going to feel mistrust and insecurity. It doesn't help to go on these projects of improving self-esteem. Have you noticed? (laughs) There's tons of them. They've been around for decades, and they don't work. There's some basic insecurity they never touch. Because if we're believing concepts about ourselves, we're not connected with our beingness. Stories are, at best, a frozen fragment. And by nature, they're incomplete. They're just a little piece of it. And they stop us. If we're living on the stories about who we are, they stop us from directly, intimately contacting this changing flow of being. Last night, as I was reflecting on this, um, my son in the next room was reading this essay to a friend. It's titled, Every Living Thing. Every Living Thing is a World Performance. This is a very complex sentence, meaning that anything that lives is never the same as it was a second ago. If you pick a flower, you are not seeing the whole of its life. You are just looking at one of the many stages in its lifetime. A caterpillar will become a butterfly, as I will become an adult. A dandelion will create a new performance by the wind blowing away the gray seeds, as I will create a new performance by having children. This is why every living thing is a world performance. Thought I'd invite him to do the talk tonight, but he was busy. (laughs) When we just believe our ideas, we disconnect from the whole. We disconnect from not only the changing flow, but all of who we are. We forget and do not call on our creativity and our essence. It's a story I heard recently of a woman who's an art teacher at a college in the West Coast, and she had a four-year-old child, and the four-year-old asked her what she did for work, you know, because they were talking with friends about what does your mommy do, and so she said to her, well, I'm an art teacher at a college. And then the child said, 
You mean they forgot? <laughs> so clear to a four-year-old. We all are artists, you know? So the thing we begin to explore is how have our fear-based stories really stopped us from trying new things, stopped us from playing, stopped us from getting close to each other. Our lives can get very small. And our path is to open up out of these stories, to reconnect with a true sense of our own nature. But the challenge is, as one psychologist said, that we're afraid of feeling the life that's within us. We feel like it's too much, too scary, too mysterious, too much to handle. We're afraid of it. So we take refuge in thoughts. We disconnect. We dissociate. And much of meditation practice, as most of you know, is gradually, and I say gradually on purpose because we're not able to do it all at once and for good. There's no such thing. But gradually, we start recognizing how much we're living one step removed from our own hearts and beings. How much out of fear we've disconnected. And gradually, with that recognition, we begin to come back home to include our bodies and our hearts and sensations and emotions in a very intimate and direct way. This is really honoring our embodiment. It all happens in these bodies. And so many... Uh, in the early days, so much of spiritual life was this idea that we're trying to kind of get out of these bodies and into some rainbow explosion of lights out there, you know, that Buddha and awakening happened way out there, up there at another time, and it doesn't. It's right here, right now, these bodies waking up, these hearts waking up. So our practice is to connect in that way. Again, as just a matter of reflection. You don't have to sit up real tall or anything, but just to close your eyes and ask yourself, do you own your body or are you a body? What's your sense? Take a moment to sense your concepts or stories about your body, your ideas of your body, too fat, too thin, painful, fit, filled with pleasure, unpleasant, attractive, not attractive, aging, whatever the stories are. What are your stories about this body? Recognizing those stories, and then taking a few breaths, and then sitting down in this body, and feeling your body from the inside in a very direct, unencumbered way, just allowing the experience to be recognized. To feel the breath within the breath the body within the body. This is mindfulness, heartfulness. You can come on back if you'd like. Our way of practice 
of reconnecting with our nature, of learning to trust how it is, is one of inclusion. That to dissociate and take refuge in thoughts is to push away a part of our life. And what we do here and through the days as we practice mindfulness is to include all that's been pushed away, including our bodies. What we push away, the shame, fear, we push away excitement, we push away longing, loneliness, anger. We try to keep everything controlled. You know, I love the part in The Wizard of Oz where they're there being kind of at that original, original meeting with The Wizard of Oz and this booming voice has them mesmerized with this appearance of grandeur and, fear, and they're fearful and they believe in it and only Toto had the gumption to pull aside the curtain so they could see the cause behind the appearances. So we have to cultivate the Toto in each of us, right? <laughs> really, a lot of practice pulling aside the curtain where we weren't looking and just being willing to see what is here behind these thoughts, these appearances, what's true in this body, in this heart, right this moment. As we practice and the practice goes more deeply, it's within each emotion, within each experience, sensing behind the curtain, the grasping or resisting that essentially keeps us from re-entering the flow and being really right here, right this moment. Always some judgment, some pushing away, some trying to control. We begin to see it more and more quickly as our habit is to just draw the curtain aside and be willing to look and feel what's there. To not believe and identify with our thoughts. I've told many of you my favorite t-shirt that I have says, meditation, it's not what you think. Isn't that great? (laughs) It's said that David Audubon wrote, if you see a bird and it's different than the description in the field guide, believe the bird. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we believe about life? Our thoughts or our senses, you know? Sometimes half-jokingly, Dharma teachers are, that's meditation teachers, are kind of described as salespeople because what they're selling to students is this valuing of the freedom that's possible when we relate to experience in this very direct, full-bodied, honest, present way. And it's important to sell it because the big question is, well, you know, if life is difficult, why not? There's plenty of good escape routes, why not? So there's some sales that go on. Um, There was a man at the retreat that I just led, helped lead, 75-year-old man, who wrote this poem called Enlightenment. My back hurts, and now I know that's okay. I paid $480 to really feel that my back hurts, and that's okay too. (laughs) I'm going to die, and now I know that's okay. I paid $480 to really feel that I'm going to die, and that's okay too. When Jack says he's in sales, he's not kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jack really liked that one. <laughs> so, when we open to what's behind the curtain, it's not an easy thing, because if it was, it wouldn't be behind a curtain. And yet, that's what is our gateway to freedom, to include what's there. Because even when we don't include it, it's still there, and it still has its effect. Do you know what I mean? I know for many years, I would carry around a sense of not trusting myself. And this was a really big issue, and I went to therapy on it, and I did all sorts of growth work around it. And what I came to is I couldn't trust myself, because I couldn't trust that I wouldn't cause harm to other people. You know, I had a, I looked at my track record, and you know, I'm a nice person, but I caused harm to people, you know, and I couldn't let go of that, and I couldn't let go of the fact that I wouldn't do it more. So I just carried around this sense of um, not trusting, and behind the curtain was a lot of guilt and shame that I couldn't feel good about myself in that way. And what came up around that as I did more and more meditation practice was to be with the place in me that could cause harm. And what I discovered was grasping and fear, that it was out of grasping or fear that I would hurt someone. And so just to drop the story and just bring some care and attention to, oh, suffering, grasping, fear, pain in my own being. And what that did was it connected me with a sense of my nature as caring and present, and that definitely the conditionings to grasp and, and fear were there, but that wasn't the whole of my being. For years, I resisted forgiving myself. I could say, yeah, I'm in pain, but still, you know, if I forgive myself, I'll just go ahead and keep being a bad person. Do any of you know that one? <laughs> That's the dynamic of guilt and, and non-forgiveness. But actually the opposite happened, that with meditation practice and the intention to let go and forgive, um, there was, when I was kinder to myself, there was more sensitivity and space for others. I was less inclined to kind of blindly act out of the same needs and fears that had caused harm in the past. I love the way Rilke puts it. He says, perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. This path to trusting ourselves requires forgiveness. Each of us has violated standards we have. And when we carry that around, we just create more pain for ourselves. Lack of forgiveness does not turn us into a better person. And by forgiveness, I don't mean condoning behavior that causes suffering. Rather, it's the lightening of the heart that enables us to be more caring and free and present in the next moment. One person put it this way, forgiveness is finally giving up for once and for all, absolutely all hope for a better past. (laughs) 
So it's a powerful part of practice to pull aside the curtain, take a look, see what's there, feel it fully. And when it's something we've rejected because we've told ourselves bad, bad, to really open our hearts to include with the intention of really bringing care and forgiveness. So the question arises then, what are we trusting? What are we trusting in? And as I mentioned before, certainly not that we'll behave well in the future, that we won't hurt others, or that our bodies will stay healthy and alive. We're not trusting that we'll transcend the painful experiences of grief or fear or loss. The more that we're with our experience, moment by moment, the more we trust simply our capacity to be with life. We trust that we are this life. That is a major shift. When we're going around trying to control things, thinking we possess a body, thinking we have to do things, then there's life, and then there's a sense of a self that's trying to manipulate and control. When we begin to be with our experience, we re-enter the flow. We become the stream of experience itself. We become luminous and a sense interconnectedness in a very direct way. No separation. We discover that it's not happening to anyone. There's no one doing anything. There's nothing that's being possessed. The pain we feel is not my pain. It's just pain. It's the pain of the universe, the grief of the universe, the dying that all beings do. We become a flow-through of sensations and sounds and images. When we stop trying to possess it, one person, one of the students at the retreat told me this quote. He says, we think we're holding the steering wheel. Actually, we're gripping the rear view mirror. We're not doing it. We're bearing witness. And when we wake up, we just become the flow. So meditation practice really teaches us a lot about that, that we sit and the whole practice is not to control the experience, but rather be receptive, listen to sounds happening, be with sensations, become this life. This poem is called Earth Roots. What are earth roots, my daughter asked when she was just a child, examining each flower in its home? Earth roots are a special connection, a sacred thread that joins our spirits to every living thing, I said. Earth roots join me to you and you to birds and to flowers. In her hand, my daughter held a sparrow with a broken wing. She said, can earth roots make the sparrow fly again? The sparrow can become a rose in time, just as the rose takes wing, I said. Earth roots make all things possible. My daughter did not understand these things until she had a daughter of her own. Then she saw the way earth roots join the sparrow to the rose. When we relax our attention, when we stop controlling, when we let life happen and just rest in what's happening, a natural sense of wonder arises of appreciation. When we become this life and are connected to it, there's deep gratitude and interest, 
I love these letters. This is um, letters children write to God. And I'll just read you a few of the small ones. Dear God, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was that an accident? Norma. <laughs> Instead of making people die and making new ones, why not just keep the ones you've got now? James. <laughs> I, want, I went to this wedding, and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? Neil. It's okay that you made different religions, but don't you get mixed up sometimes? Arnold. Do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you do, I'm going to fix my brother. Darren. Thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. Joyce. And the last... Are boys better than girls? I know you are one, so try to be fair. <laughs> Sylvia. So I started tonight with the question of what makes this kind of radical trust possible, you know, trusting really in how things are. We naturally trust our beings and our lives when we connect directly with moment-to-moment experience. That's the place that trust awakens from. We don't have to wait until our conditioning is extinguished. We don't have to wait till there's no more grasping or fear or delusion. Because actually, it's by paying wise attention to what arises that trust is cultivated. It's not because they're not here. The most difficult part is remembering to look behind the curtain. We all get lost in the dream. You know, we get lost in our stories and we forget. Once we remember, looking's not so hard, but to remember to look, to wake up out of the story. Several years ago um, at Yucca Valley where I just taught, um, I'd go for these long walks in the desert and there's all sorts of canyons and ridges and so on. and. At one point, I went for a particularly long one and got lost, and it took me quite a long time to get back, and it was scary, you know, because it's it's a big desert. (laughs) So after I got back, a good friend said, here's the trick, and he showed me a spire that was on the top of one of the main buildings that was huge, and he said, you can see this one from anywhere. And so whenever I'd walk after that, I'd always know that if I just turned around I could find the spire and I'd have a way home. And I walked with great abandon because there was always a way to remember. In a sense, I feel like that's the gift of practice, that we begin to trust that we have a way back. We can also trust that we'll keep getting lost. It does keep happening, you know. We will forget. We'll get in the grip of our stories. We'll think we're separate. We'll think we're in trouble, we'll think something's wrong, we'll get lost. And the more we practice, the more we remember, ah, stop, what's true right now? To look behind the curtain, to let go of the story, and really include in a very honest, full-hearted way, what's true, what's happening in this body, this moment. Each moment that we do that, we build our capacity to trust that we can be with life, each moment. The magic is, when we do it, when we bring a kind, present attention to what's really here, we open to become that kind, present awareness. 
our identity shifts from being the small being that in some ways persecuted about by not okayness to being the awareness that includes that conditioning but is free to rest in a sense of true wisdom and compassion. So that's the practice. And um, if you will, just to sit up and we'll sit for a few moments in silence. Letting your intention be to do nothing, to just be, and sense with whatever you can a presence, an open-heartedness that's with whatever arises. Nothing to do. The sounds happen on their own. The sensations move in their own way. It's all just happening to rest in this ever-changing flow of experience. The Buddha is nowhere out there. Rather, the Buddha is the awakening heart-mind within each of us. To trust that is to discover freedom.
So we have a few minutes if anyone has any questions or sharing. everybody hear that? Because there's a really wonderful reminder in it that here we are valuing acceptance and forgiveness and all sorts of things that really are quite transformative. And yet, if we get fixated on them as happening, we can bring our striving, we can bring what's called not right effort to anything, to being present. There can be attention. So it's a wonderful reminder to keep coming back to, okay, what's really happening now? Oh, tension, striving, wanting it to be a certain way, and let go, just see that. The only real freedom comes from just what's happening this moment and being with that, not from some idea that we should be accepting or forgiving or this or that. Although they can be skillful ideas and be used well at very many important times in our lives. But, so thank you, that, that's a good reminder. Anyone else? Did your son write that essay? Wow. He's 10? Yeah, he's 10. He got an assignment saying, write an essay about the meaning of all life is a world performance. That, that sentence, and that was his response. Yeah, I just heard it for the first time last night. And I plucked it, you know, I said, oh, this is going in the talk.
Did you hear that? I'll repeat it. What Robin's saying is that there's a behavior at work that that is not skillful or that you don't like, and that he's been meditating on it and being with it and bringing attention to it, but it's not changing. So, you know, if we're meditating, how long does it take for these things to change? <laughs> um, what have you noticed by paying attention to it? Mm-hmm. And when you notice it coming out of fear, then what happens? <laughs> do you have Do you have time ever to? Is there a pause where you can be with the experience of the fear before you do the behavior? Rarely. Right. Right. Okay. So what, there's two levels of response for right now that I can think of, and one is that. Um, we, there's a real lag period in terms of our way of being in the world, catching up to some of the truths that we really know about. It's deep conditioning to um, be angry at people at a moment's notice or to try to impress or to try to... I mean, that stuff's really deeply wired. So it takes a lot of patience and just what you said, not to grasp after it being a certain way. It's just not going to be perfect. It's not going to conform to our idea of how it should be. So part of the practice is the willingness to let it not feel okay, but also the willingness to keep investigating and being with what's underneath. But a suggestion for you to kind of explore it further is when you're not there to let run through what's happening and sense where the aversion and fear is and just stop since you're not with, you're not, it's, it's in vivo, but you're not there and see if you can let yourself make some room for that fear and just in a friendly way kind of give it some space to unfold itself and see what it's like. Yeah, and since you can't do it so well, you know, when it's actually happening, and this happens to most of us, we don't, there's just not enough time for us to kind of process this is a little bit of a therapeutic kind of approach, but using mindfulness to when you do have some time, go ahead and rerun it in your mind, sense the fear, and then be with the fear at that time so you can start connecting with what's underneath it and have the space to let it loosen up some. 
let me know. I'd be interested in hearing. Yeah. Question. I'm not quite sure how to say it, but it's around being skillful with situations where, similar to what the person talking about, um, noticing, say, behavior at work of somebody who, and I'll notice the fear comes up for me, and and I'll I'll judge that they're being cruel, that they are being unkind in some way, and then I'll notice that I'm judging, but. I guess to me, it, it really seems that that is the truth about right. the matter. And right. I guess I'm not sure what, you know, can you comment on sure. that? So the question would be, what if what you perceive really is somebody in some way violating or causing suffering, then what, where's the role for judgment? I mean, it, it's a real thing that's happening. And um, there's a real difference between what the Buddha described as wise discrimination and judgment where your own hatred or anger, you're, you're just creating more aversion. And our freedom comes when we can recognize, okay, suffering's occurring, and out of compassion, respond in as helpful a way as possible. And that's real different than if suffering's occurring, and out of our own fear, we slap on more judgment, which is really, in another level, just putting on more violence to the situation. This is how war happens. It's just one violation, and then it's compiled with another and another, and very few beings have the space in their heart and mind to say, ah, this is, this is causing suffering, we need to respond, but not out of more hate. There's the most beautiful line in the Dhammapada says, hatred does not cease by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And yet, that's very difficult to do and we have to be really patient with ourselves because we're all wired to respond. You know, we see a violation and it makes us angry and me too. And so just to watch it. And with either of these, Robin, yours and yours, to the extent that you can sense, especially when you're with other people, sense the habitual reaction and stop, somehow or other stop and do something different, say something different, but try to have a pause to just be with yourself, even a little pause begins to break the deeply rooted chain of reactivity. Just a little pause, even like five seconds, can change the history of the universe. <laughs> you know? It really, it's very powerful. So play with that. Yeah. To hear the Dalai Lama, yeah. Because I did the same thing. I, I have certain behaviors I want to change. And of course, I want to change them quickly and be perfect right away. And one of the things he said was, it goes on with what you were saying, was that if each time you do this behavior, you try to change it just a tiny bit. In other words, he said, don't expect or don't think or hope that we're going to make this dramatic change. It's a long process. Each time, or every so often, you changed it a tiny, tiny bit. And I really liked that because it took away a lot of the pressure yeah. I put on myself yeah. to sort of wake up one day and be a better person. And it was sort of saying, um, it was a gradual change. We were hoping that little by little, like a little rain comes in, we may see some difference. Could everyone hear that one? It, it was, it's so important. We can, 
use wanting to be different in such a cruel way to ourselves. It reinforces all the sense of something's wrong with me. Even when it's a noble change we want, it still reinforces the sense of insufficiency. So to have the longing to awaken is great, but to have such a gentle sense of, okay, just a bit at a time, in whatever way is possible, if it's just pausing for a few seconds before a response, or just checking in and saying what's true, or having the intention to bring metta, loving kindness, just for a moment to your own pain when you're caught in a snag, you know, just a little bit, and it really retrains the awareness. So, so thank you. Yeah. Can you say uh, a couple more words on the rebound technique? You have to get, oh, if, you, if you don't catch it in the moment, it's doing it or it's happening, but yet then it's okay to rerun it later and then sense the resulting state. Yeah. I mean, this is really what most mostly happens in not only psychotherapy, but in meditation sittings. We're rerunning stuff all the time, aren't we? <laughs> I do. <laughs> so sometimes it'll happen anyway. You'll get great opportunities just because it comes up again when you're on your own. But if it doesn't, and yet you're carrying the angst around it, sure. As much as I'm talking tonight about drop the story, feel what's under, you can resurrect the story in a skillful way so it has to have access to what's under. I wouldn't get too caught in playing around with it because what's mostly important is to learn to be with what comes up naturally because plenty comes up. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of spring in my head so I've got a lot of anger towards someone. I've got a situation in my life where there's a lot of anger towards someone and you know, I, I very much am aware that I need to be with myself around that and that you know, if I stay angry, I can be part of the problem. So what if there's a whole lot riding on something and you don't have time to be gradual and patient? Um, I don't know. (laughs) 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 And everything kind of has its own timing. And I find with anger for myself, the most direct, immediate, powerful, and fast thing I can do is to deeply forgive that it's present. Because for most of us, we have, with, along with anger, a sense of something's really wrong with us for feeling it. Even though it might give us a rush of feeling power, underneath that we sense our inadequacy. So to deeply forgive it, and, and to do that, you have to take away that frame of, I'm forgiving you so you'll go away. Because that's, that's cheating. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I don't know how to speed it up. So we're out of time, um, but your questions are wonderful. They really are, and um, I thank you for them.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.